0: Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? On the podcast today, we have Frank Dick, OBE, that's Officer of the British Empire for our global listeners. Frank is the author of some fantastic books. They provide the tools and motivation for winning in sport, business, and life in general. He's been coaching in Formula One, tennis, golf, and has had his hand in pretty much every Olympic since the 90s, and is currently working with the England rugby team on coaching them towards aspirational glory in the World Cup this year, 2019. So from inspiring the British athletics team to all score one point higher than their expected grade and take the overall trophy, to getting Boris Becker to change his ingrained breakfast eating habits. Simply put, Frank's achievements are incredible. And if you're a human interested in achieving anything, you should give him a listen. Thus, it's my pleasure to have you on the podcast today, Frank. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate guest. Thanks. Awesome. So it's nice to sort of find out a bit of guest's background. So I thought we could just start with a question about your early childhood. Do you have a vivid memory that you think affected you or just anything that kind of springs to mind from when you're like really small?
1: No, really. I mean, I, I had a fantastic mum and dad. My dad was in the Royal Air Force. Um, he was uh, fighting for his country when my mom was trying to bring me up for the first nine years of my life. We lived in a very small single end in a basement in Leith. And that was that my mother had this ambition that I, sh- I should have a good education because she had a very tough life. When she was 15, she had tuberculosis. But we a very intelligent woman missed a complete year of school, came back, and she got seven hires. That's like getting seven A levels in a year. So she was very, very bright, very ambitious. And she kind of made sure that I did get it to a, the kind of school that would give me the education that I needed. It was really the the wrong part of Edinburgh um, to, uh, to be going to such a school or high school because I probably was the only kid in the street with a school blazer. But she was stuck to the game. And to certainly send a letter down because I really didn't work all that hard at school. Uh, eventually got into athletics and like chase girls around, also that sort of stuff. So when I got to the end of my school career, uh, whilst I was bad bad athlete by that point, I, I failed every science exam I ever sat. And the, the odd thing in life, really, is that you can get it into your head, that you only have one chance. But the truth is, you get another, and then you'll get another, and you get another, and another. And the bit is, you've got to grab one of them and do something with it. And a friend of mine, Bob Hay, who pioneered um, surgery for cleft palate in children, he was studying medicine at Edinburgh University, and he managed to get me into Edinburgh University at the to a back door because when I left school, I just didn't have the qualifications to get into university. So, having got me into the back door, his reason was so they could run for Edinburgh University. Uh, went to the what was called the UAU Championships in athletics um, at Loughborough. Uh, finished second and a half mile; it would be at that point, not 800 meters by then. And the chap called Robbie Brightwell was there. He was to be the captain of the Olympic team back in 1960 four. And he said to me, why, why are you not here? And I said, well, I didn't know a Scottish boy I could come into an English institution. And he said, of course you can, and we'll help you. And so I did. And that was my second chance, if you like. I was pretty, I knew I struggled at science, but I worked double time in science because it suddenly meant something to me. Knowing about biomechanics, knowing about anatomy, knowing about physiology was going to be critical if I wanted to become a coach. And so that, that was it. I got stuck into that. And if you like, the rest is history. Went from there, came out, taught for a few years, went straight on there to University of Oregon so they could see what Bill Bowman was up to across there. Uh, learned a lot from him. Learned a, lo- a lot simply by paying every penny I had in my pocket to go around Europe watching other coaches in action at European Championships and things. Mm. And then, oddly enough, I got an invitation to go to the University of British Columbia. and do a fellowship there and study educational philosophy. Robert Osborne, I think, was the head of the department at that point. And I went out to say goodbye to my mum and dad in Edinburgh and um, bumped into my first coach. And he said to me, oh, do you realise John Anderson, the national coach, is is leaving? I said, no. He said, why don't you apply for the job? I said, no, look, I've made my mind up now. I'm going to the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, um, probably become a Canadian citizen and get on with life across there. You now, why don't you try for a laugh? Well, I applied and he offered me the job. And after that, Scottish National Coach, UK National Director of Coaching, and a wonderful life of this fantastic passion called coaching.
0: Cool. Thanks for the good introduction. But yeah, it was a pretty good tip on that. You kind of, you do always sort of feel like you're in like one point in time, like this is the, the most important thing and you're never going to have a chance again. But then stuff always does come up and you can always take a second chance. Things. Yeah.
1: And I think that's how you coach people too. I mean, you find a way. I mean, the idea is not to give ownership to the people you're coaching. It's for the people you're you're coaching to take ownership. You've got to give them the tools of the trade, tell them what the outcome is that you're seeking and that they must seek. Then you must leave it for them to work out how to do it. And if there's anything about it, they'll find a way. I mean, that's the whole bit. Life is not about Having a plan and getting out, no matter how much we've talked about it in the past. Having a plan, of course, you need some kind of plan. But understand this: once you're into the heat of battle out there in life, nobody's going to just let you deliver your plan. Other people are going to try to stop you doing that. And I think what you have to do is to accept that it's about chaos. Everything out there is chaos and uncertainty and change. And if you're not willing to go in there and be equipped to adapt and adjust, at speed to learn faster than everybody else, then you'll fall by the wayside. And I'd like to think if we've if we've got a passion to win in life, uh, you'll find a way. And that's that's really the essence of everything out there. Whatever winning is, I mean, I'm not suggesting that winning is always getting a gold medal, because for most of us that won't happen very often in life. But getting to the top of our own mountain, being better today than we were yesterday, o- overcoming adversity. These are all wins. These are all the kind of wins that we seek and that are, are, are for everybody in life.
0: So prepare yourself for that. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, that was uh, going to be a question. And what would you say to someone who's um, read your books and about winning and being like, oh, i read your book and then I didn't go out and win everything straight away. <laughs> and What would be like the best tips to sort of keep that kind of mentality of, okay, how do I just sort of win every day for myself kind of thing?
1: Well, I remember when my two daughters were growing up Every now and again, they would uh, uh, hit, hit a few problems and things. And I used to say, look, do you think your day was a disaster? Said, oh, yes. Well, no, no. T- take a piece of paper here. I split it down the middle, an A4 pad. And write, start at the top on the left-hand side. And write down everything that went right today. And then when you've finished that, go to the right side and see the things that didn't. And I'll bet you now, even before you start, that the left side wins. And that's what winning is. I mean, it's, you can't possibly expect everything to go perfectly in life. It's just not gonna do that. And you set yourself realistic goals. And the interesting thing to me about setting goals, by the way, when it comes to coaching athletes, is that I've always ended up setting them a slightly lower goal than they would set themselves. And it's almost as if I say, that's what you're gonna go for, there's something at the back of the mind says, if, that's, if he thinks that's what I'm worth, I'm gonna go for even more.
0: Okay, interesting. That's the opposite to like the 10x goal mentality of like have ridiculously over ambitious goals and sort of do everything out of your proportion to get that kind of thing.
1: People who want to get on and achieve in life, to be who they can become, they they, there's a drive in them that wants to go to be better. But it's Mm. it's a foolish person who always compares their achievement with someone else's. The fact is, you start off in life when when you're working with young athletes for the first time, what you, you try to define achievement for them. In, and it's easy, of course, in track and field athletics because you can measure it by a clock, by the stopwatch, and by the measuring tape. Can you be better today than you were when you competed last time round? Because at some point in life, you're going to be finished last in a competition. But was, did you give that your best performance today? Was that better than you've done before? Because that's all I can ask of you. I want you to be challenging you to go higher up your mountain. And yeah. the odd thing is, if you think about somebody who achieves a world record, right? all they've done themselves is being, be, to be better than they were yesterday. So it, might, it actually counts at every level in life. Can you mm. be better tomorrow than you are today? Can you do something differently tomorrow than you did today? because I believe that that's possible for everyone.
0: Yeah, definitely. And like, it's certainly, well, I didn't know I wasn't around in the 80s and stuff, but it feels like it's harder today with things like social media and you're constantly comparing yourself to others and all this sort of stupid stuff that doesn't help with your mindsets. Yeah, I think that's hurting people
1: and that. So that's one of the reasons why well, you, you'll know your statistics better than I do in all mm. of this stuff, is that it, I think it's causing uh, mental and emotional damage. I think there must be some sense in life of personal achievement for yourself. It's got nothing to do with people outside there, because every single person, hopefully who watched this and uh, you and I and my, my my family, we're all absolutely different. even identical to it, we're absolutely different. And so how can we all have exactly the same goals in life? How can we all expect? To win the London Marathon. How can we all expect to get an Olympic cup? It's stupid. You've mm. got to set your goals relative to you and who you can become. Do you have a picture of that? Do you have a picture of who you want to be? Which is not. I'd like to be better than you are at running a podcast.
0: Yeah, maybe you would be. To be fair,
1: never be that good. Yeah, I think people do set realistic goals but very seldom in life do you really need somebody else to set the goal for you.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, there's definitely a problem that's going on these days. And then back to an earlier point you said of recognizing your own wins and like the writing down what went right on one side and what went wrong on the other side. There's, um, There's a really cool book where this guy talks about you just don't notice how much stuff goes right as in you always think that the traffic lights turn red on you and that there's a big queue mm. for when you're trying to buy something but you never notice the time when you just walk up to the front of the queue because there's no queue there you just kind of like walk up and do it and it takes like two seconds you don't really go oh where i'm at the front of the queue today because there's no one else there but if you did that every time you'd be like oh wow like nine times out of ten there was no queue i just never actually realized
1: well it's a really good point just so, i mean the It seems that there's something in our nature that will look for the flaw rather than for for when things are absolutely all right. So, for example, you'll notice a button missing in your shirt, but you'll very seldom comment on the fact that your shirt has got all the buttons on there. And you'll notice that somebody's got a pimple or something But you won't make any kind of comment when there's no pimple there. I mean, there's something in our nature that seems to want to find something that's not there, that something's wrong. But should we not take some time to just, if you like, celebrate the good stuff that's out there? Which is, I think, we're saying the same thing here. But if you're like seduced into the errors of life, take time to look at the good bits and ask yourself, how can we make that better, rather than Oh, there's a a bit of a problem across there. We'll have to deal with that. And when things are going right, can you make them better? Can you do things differently? I think in every situation in life, win, lose, or draw out there, you have to be able to ask yourself afterwards, what could I have done better? What could I have done differently? Learn from that and then do something with it. In fact, I can't remember if we discussed this the last time we were together, but I tried to work through four R's in myself, and in trying to get other people to think about this when they go through anything from a meeting to a podcast to a competition. And the four R's are, are first of all, reason. Why am I doing this? What's the purpose of today? And what's the outcome I'm looking for? Get the reason right. Next R is reality. What do I have to do? And how do I have to do it? Who's involved and so on, in order to create, to reach the reason. The third R is reflection. First of all, in advance, be prepared to learn. That's in terms of attitude, but also get the machinery there so you can learn. But when it comes to reflection, what did I learn from this? And response, what am I gonna do differently or better as a consequence of all this? So you reason, reality, reflection, and response. And oddly enough, I find that last point, the one that a lot of people miss out on, they don't make a commitment following the lesson to do something worth it. And I think if you keep that, little, that simple little guide at the back of your mind when you go into any situation, when you come to the end, you'll always be moving on to better ground afterwards.
0: Nice. So I was thinking, so you're saying how we notice like, the little flaws that are wrong, but then, we should have the mindset that we always want to improve. And like, as a coach, you're obviously trying to help people improve and you're always noticing the flaws that they have, but you have to sort of spin it in a way that, Oh, you're doing really well. This is how you can do better rather than like, Oh, you did this wrong. This was terrible kind of thing.
1: No, you've got to be honest with people. You've got to be candid. there got to be a candor there. If we don't have these honest conversations, these candid conversations, saying things the way they are without being cruel, rude, disrespectful, or whatever, get rid of that kind of behavior. But, you're candid with people. If there's no candor, there's no honesty. If there's no honesty, there's no trust. If there's no candor in a team situation, there's no accountability. If there's no accountability, there's no respect. And the other thing to remember when you are in coaching, Sam, is that you don't have to be sick to get better, mm. right? The number of times I see a coach who will focus in on a flaw straight away and try to make that right. Well, there's, I've got a simple rule for this. When you're trying to improve people and make them strong, make them better, understand this. They are with you because of what they're strong at, right? You selected them for your team because of what they're good at. So your first priority as a coach is to work on what they're good at to make it better, right? That's your first priority. Your second priority is to work on a weakness only if it interferes with their strength. And the third order of priority is, if their weakness is causing a problem for other people's strengths in the team, so you work on the strength first. On the back of that, you work on a weakness if it's interfering with their strength. On the back of that, you work on the weakness if it's hurting other people in the team. Cool,
0: that's very good. Why did you want to become a coach in the first place?
1: First of all, I was desperate to be good at something at school, and I wasn't being very good academically, but I managed to finish in third place in a half mile, and I was desperate to get into the school team, and I pestered the guys who were ahead of me to see if I could get one of them, a young lad called Martin Emsley, who was also a hurdler. I tried to persuade him that if he ran the the half mile and the hurdles, it would probably not be a good idea in the competition. So why didn't you concentrate on the hurdles? Because the 800 meters, the half mile was going to be hard, and you get you can get a bit of pain at the end of that. So I, I did. I actually persuaded them out of running the half mile. So I got into the half mile, and I get a pretty good race. And then I was really passionate about athletics. I managed to persuade my mum and dad to give me enough money to get to. The Scottish Schoolboys course, and I persuaded the head, that the physical education teacher, to get me there. And when I went to the Scottish Schoolboys athletics course at Easter, I went into this this lovely big building called Inverclyde in, in, uh, in Ayrshire. And coming down the stairs was this giant. His name was Tony Chapman, who was Scottish national coach. And when I listened to him speaking, I thought, I'd like to be like that. I'd really like to know. The answer to all the questions that I'm desperately needing answers to as a young athlete. And I think I've still got somewhere in my library here some the notes that I took from that very, very first course, trying to work out how to be a better athlete and understand all the events in the athletics. And oddly enough, that probably didn't really reemerge until the Loughborough situation. And then, of course, ending up with a Scottish national coach's job. So there I was in the same job as that guy who had looked at when I was a schoolboy. Isn't it odd in life, Sam, that you think opportunities go in and out all the time, don't they? And sometimes something comes around again, and as my mum would always say, ah, it's meant, right? Yeah. And that's what you're supposed to have done, that's you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's
0: cool. I say one. Well, what would you say was the most difficult coaching period for you? I was a
1: Scottish national coach. First Commonwealth Games that I was coached for went pretty well, it was at home. The next one was in New Zealand in Christchurch and it was a disaster. I think we got one medal out of the whole thing. I think it was a discus medal. And I came home and the press were pretty brutal. That's the way it goes when you're a chief coach. And a chap called uh, Jock Steen was the manager of Celtic at that time. And I'm a ranger supporter, so there was no reason at all for me to have expected this surprise phone call out of nowhere that said, um, hello, is that Frank Dick? Uh, yep, yeah, this is Jock Steen. I see you're in a bit of trouble, son. I wonder if you'll have some lunch with me tomorrow. Which I didn't take as much as an invitation, as kind of an order. So I went to the Glasgow and we walking down the street um, he said, your head's still down, son. I said, yeah, well, it's pretty brittle, all that stuff. He said, listen, how many people do you think there are between us and these traffic lights? He said, about 100. He said, well, at least 99 of them think they know more about football than me. So, but the fact is, Frank, they're not accountable for their opinion, but I'm accountable for mine, and you're accountable for yours. It's the people who are in the arena and who work in the arena They're accountable for everything, not the people who stand on the outside and have observations. And that was a big lesson to me. Um, It was a tough period. And it made me want to study a little bit harder. Maybe I, I knew more than I actually did. And it made me dig a little bit deeper. But it also made me understand that in life, if you don't believe in yourself, don't expect anybody else to. And so that was really quite a little turning point for me. And I'm forever grateful to Jock. I don't think I've ever cried much in life, but I cried the night that uh, Jock died halfway through a football game as he was manager of Scotland at that point against Wales. It was a terrible tragedy of an evening because a guy who'd seriously influenced my life was no longer
0: going to be there. That's a deep um, point there at the end. It's uh, quite sad to hear. But... Clearly, meant a lot to you. What what would you say as a coach has been like the sort of things that people don't realize, the mindsets that you need to have as a coach that are different to a mindset of an athlete or like a captain of a team?
1: I think, first of all, you must bear in mind that those persons whose lives you're influencing look to you for stability, and in particular, emotional stability. You've got to be able to hold your emotions, no matter whether you're battered, bruised or elated, you've got to hold your emotions in kind of a central corridor, a level where you never go over the moon, you never go to the depths of despair. You are the person that an athlete will look to when they are going through such turmoil to give them stability and self-belief to go on because some people have, and an Olympic athlete, they've given maybe eight years of their lives to get to that point and things have just not quite worked out the way they should. And you've got to be able to pick out the strengths in all of that and the value of all of that and keep your own emotions in that central corridor and help them to remain strong in their own belief, in their own value in life. And the journey to achieve their purpose has not been a waste of time because one of the things I like to make sure that coaches understand is that when you are working with an athlete, you're not only preparing them for sport, but you're preparing them through sport for life. Um, There are lessons that you learn about being accountable to your teammates, um, the value of hard work, having a goal, being able to be resilient, to be patient, to be persistent. There's so many things that you learn In the journey that are going to serve you well in how you will live your life afterwards. And so I think as a coach, you are this central block of stability that they know they can rely on. But what you are doing is not only preparing them for the very obvious thing of I'm trying to get to deliver a lifetime best or a world record or an Olympic gold medal or even in the club championships, or even simply to be better than I was yesterday. You're helping them through that journey. But in the meantime, you're hopefully using the experience that they're having to draw out lessons that will help them for life
0: Oh, wow. yeah, that's really interesting. so what would you say like if I was able to have like a magic wand and bless myself with one key ability in my mind, what would you say was like the one thing I should be able to give myself to be able to sort of have more motivation on something or to ignore something and if I could just like mind control on one specific ability what would that one ability be that's most important
1: well it's a good point because i think when you're whether it's in business or whether it's out there in the arena you know that there's a task that you're going to have to fulfill you know what your task is and you've done all the work for it you've trained for it you've done the tactical stuff on it you're hopefully brilliant at your basics because if you don't have the basics in place forget everything else You've got all of this stuff in in place, and now the, the whole issue of commitment and intent, you're focused in on the task, and that's what you're gonna have to achieve. Now, people think, well, that's all you need. Nope, you need something else to be going on in parallel with that. You must have a pretty sophisticated skill at how to ignore or how to manage the distractions. The distraction could be what an opponent does to you. The distraction could be the weather. The distraction can be how you felt this morning. The distraction can be what somebody said to you. If you let any of these distractions uh, come into your thinking when you're trying to focus on this task, then you're going to be in trouble because you dilute things straight away. It's kind of like when these distractions are around, if you can see them and are aware of them, you start thinking about them if you start thinking about them in many instances that has an emotional consequence and once the emotional consequence begins to be evident in you inside you and you're aware of it then you're going to have problems because you have to be able to control all of that or you can't keep your mind on the task at hand and so emotional control begins to be a critical thing out there and there are different edges to this i mean if you're in a game and in my mind, you can be particularly vulnerable in terms of that emotional control when you've just conceded a point or a goal or whatever, or whether you've just got one. Why? Because there's an, there could be an emotional consequence to each. When somebody delivers a coup de grace and you're, you're suddenly back on your heels because the, you didn't expect them to be breaking through and getting that point, if you begin to focus and think about that all the time and you begin, you begin to get to a point of kind, some kind of a despair, then your energies are sapping, you're not concentrating in your job, and you can be smacked. For example, earlier this season, I remember Manchester United playing Tottenham Hotspur. Um, Manchester United were holding Spurs, it was kind of an even game, and then Spurs scored. And two minutes later, they scored again. And so, to me, that's a clear example of you've allowed the situation to get into your emotions, there's a consequence to that. You're not concentrating on the job at hand, smack. But it can happen the other way around. So if you think about the European Cup a few years ago, when England had scored against Iceland, Iceland scored two minutes later. And oddly enough, in the, the most recent World Cup, when Argentina scored against Iceland, Iceland came back and scored in a couple of minutes again. So you've got to be very careful about how you manage the emotions around that. You've got to be able to draw your brain into refocusing, reestablishing, get rid of all that stuff. It's a piece of history. There's nothing you can do about history. It's gone. The only thing you can deal with is now and how it will affect the future. And you've got to get your brain into that straight away. So this business of emotional management and control is really, really important, Sam. And if we're not careful, it can catch us out. If you want to take that outside the arena and into a, a, longer, a longer term kind of situation, I was remember remember listening to a, a conversation last year when a chap said to me, you know, success can derail progress. Now, I found that an odd thing to say because I thought, I thought I was brought up to think that success breeds success. But only in the short term, only if you can feed off that and use that as a new energy that... Well, if that was good, how can we be even better? Can you keep that? Can you keep your foot on the accelerator? The other side of that, of course, is that you can get seduced by it. You can just get seduced by success. And if you're not careful, you think, well, if we just keep going this way, we'll rule the world. But the fact is, life is changing round about you all the time. And what brought you success yesterday will not necessarily bring you anything tomorrow.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. There's two really, really big valid points there. I think the whole emotional control and focus is quite poignant as well for just like anyone trying to work, say you're sort of trying to do some writing or something and you let your mind think about the fact that you've got some emails coming in or like you've got some texts and suddenly you're like, oh, I need to answer these things. And next thing you know, like your whole day is just sort of ruined and getting work done and stuff.
1: Well, coming back to an earlier point, this is where things like social media, and I don't think social media is totally bad. Yes, yeah, the way we use it. Exactly. Almost like any other situation in life, it's how you use. I mean, a, can a book be a bad thing? Or it depends what you're going to do with it. Can a motor be a dangerous thing? Well, of course it can, but it doesn't have to be. It depends on how you're going to use the thing. And unfortunately, one of the difficult aspects of social media is that we are all vulnerable, or most people are vulnerable, to other people's words and opinions if we let them. And unfortunately, there's a large aspect of social media where, for, for some people where they're almost looking at the content for affirmation, affirmation of who they are. And that's a big mistake to make. You are who you are. At the end of the day, I shouldn't say this, but who gives a damn about other people's opinion? Yeah. I mean, you, you live, hopefully, the right values in life. And you, of course, can be vulnerable to other people's jealousies and so on, because they, they know that we're vulnerable to a, a, a bad word or a or bad opinion every now and again. And for some people, they will take a vindictive pleasure in visiting that upon you. And yeah. so you've got to make sure that you believe in you. As I said earlier, if you don't believe in you, don't expect anybody else to.
0: Nice. Thanks. So as you've coached a lot of different people, you must have seen lots of different routines that people have for success. What would you say were the key traits that, they all sort of had that were successful in their routine? What were the kind of myths of like, oh, you should always have breakfast at like 5 a.m. or something, or that actually were completely irrelevant?
1: No, you've got to develop your own routine. Mm. But also, I have to say, because life changes around about you all the time, and there's also going to be uncertainties and things, you've actually got to bring into your life disruption. Being able to cope with disruption, on the one hand, is, is important. Because if somebody tries to knock you off balance, can you get on balance straight away? That was kind of a big lesson I picked up from Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut. Remember him? He went up to the space station. He, he, sang, he was a guy who sang Ground Control to Major Tom from space. Um, he wrote a fantastic book, um, The Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And one of the, the big things that came out of that, that I, I think is very important, it was how they trained astronauts uh, that astronauts are trained to expect things to be wrong, to expect them not to be right, and for them to go into the situation with a mindset that they will make it right. They have the ability to turn situations around to advantage straight away. For most of us, we practice doing it right. And for most of us, again, uh, even in training, we, we practice playing the way we want to play or doing things the way we want, and we think we need to do them. But the fact is out there, that's not going to be life. What's the the military expression? No strategy survives first contact with the enemy. There will be disruption out there. And so you've got to practice that. You've got to actually put that into your life. And the moment you think you've got good, sound basics in life, and you're building systems and a sense of routine, then you've got to be practicing what happens when somebody tries to damage your routine. Can you bend like a willow rather than snap like a a solid plank? Can you bend like a willow, accommodate that, adapt, adjust, and move on in a slightly different direction in order to get to where you want to get to? And I think that's important. But having introduced the notion of disruption, we just take that a stage further. I like the idea that we take time, no matter how well things are going, and the way we do things around here, you have to step out of that sometimes and disrupt your thinking. And asking yourself things like, well, okay, let's imagine we didn't do things the way we are doing. What if this happened and what if that happened? What could we do? What could we be in life? Can you look at, examine that and then turn it into some kind of effective action? So the way I think of it is this, can you imagine uh, Newton's Cradle. You know Newton's Cradle, the, the, the
0: balls suspended by threads? Oh, yeah. It's in, you have like kind of five. and Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Just imagine this. You take one ball, and you pull it off to one side and you call that disruption. You let it go and it bangs into the first ball and that's called dream because yeah. you start dreaming about different things the moment you disrupt it. The moment you start dreaming, you make a decision to do something with one of the dreams. The moment you start to doing that, You design what you're going to do, and the other ball flies off the other side called delivery. The thing you've got to remember is the moment that's flown off there, it's going to come back again and smack all the other balls, so you're obliged to disrupt again. And I think that's the way life is. You've got to be willing to persistently go and look at what you're doing, shake it all up. You may continue doing the same thing, but slightly better or slightly differently, but keep doing that. Because that's you're going to be required to do that, not just in life in general, but suddenly in the moment out there in the arena, in the moment out there in life, something's going to disrupt the way you're doing things. But you've got to practice that so much that you can instantly identify with the situation, adapt to it, adjust, and move on.
0: Yeah, that's nice. So in your book, you talk about like valley people and mountain people. And so the valley people are kind of people with a victim mindset that think sort of, the world is happening, they can't change it, and they, kind of, they just try to not lose, whereas someone who's like got more of a, a victor mindset is like shooting to win and like believes they can do things. How do you coach someone from feeling like more of a victim of the world to being a victor of the world? Well, first of all, if you think about it, when you're trying to
1: move forward in any aspect of your life, you'll actually step beyond where you've been. By definition, right? you've got to step beyond the comfort of where you are now to try to move yourself forward. And that's new territory, for goodness sake. You're, You're into a new world there. And that's why I call it taking the risk of winning. You've got to be able to step before that, beyond that. And in order for people to be comfortable doing that in life, what you've got to be able to do is have them understand about mistakes and stumbles. If you never make a mistake in life, you've never had a dream that you've been trying to move towards. If you never stumble in life, you've never dared to make yourself better. And the issue with the mistakes and with the stumbles is that be okay with that because they're going to happen. If they don't happen, you have not dared anything and you've not dreamt anything. So I used to say to my, my daughters all the time, failure is not about falling off your bike. Failures when you don't get back in your bike and pedal even harder. And if we don't make mistakes and say you'll not be given the opportunity to to learn from that, you might think, well, that's a nice throwaway line. But let's imagine this. I I push you to do something, to take yourself forward, and you get it wrong, right? Now, Mm -hmm. the fact is, when you get something wrong, you're given an opportunity to learn to do it better or do it differently, right? Sometimes you're yeah. always getting it right. We actually are turning a blind eye to a couple of bits and pieces. that, Let's face it, if they hadn't fallen in place, you might have had a problem. So as you go through, the whole notion of reflection, the point I made to you earlier on about the four hours is that you've got to be willing to reflect when it's going right and when it's going wrong, right? If you don't know why it's going right, then it was an accident. You've got to be able to look at why it's going right and what may not have helped it going right so that you can look at that as a lesson because we're probably pretty quick at saying, well, if something goes wrong, remember I said earlier, when you have a mistake, when you have a flaw, you can form it in that straight away because it looks pretty obvious. I can work on that. You've got to be able to make mistakes, get it right, but you've got to be able to reflect on both of them. And if you're not making mistakes, you're not pushing hard enough.
0: Yeah, there's a common problem that when it's in as a human flaw, you sort of when things are going right, you kind of blame like yourself. It's like, oh, because I'm great. But then also when things are going wrong, you kind of like blame other people. Like, oh, people are like mean to me or they're not helping me with this. And it's just like an interesting issue the way we look at stuff.
1: There's also lots of old sayings in life that I guess when you hear them the first time, you think, yeah, what what does that mean? Do you remember the old saying? You've got to fix the roof when the sun's shining.
0: I feel like I've probably heard it. It sounds familiar. I wouldn't have said I remembered it. But, why? <laughs> but it sounds good.
1: Why would you do that? Are you going to wait till it rains till you realize there's a problem? Right? Mm. If you know the roof needs fixing, uh, and you won't know it needs fixing until everything's going absolutely right, and you think, look, if that continues up there, we will have a problem in the future. So you cannot be seduced by it going well. That's a big, big mistake in life. When it's going well, what would make it go better? What might stop it going better? And can we address these two things?
0: Yeah, it's funny. Like you said about these sort of like timeless sayings that I read your book first when I was like 16 and like, I liked it, but I was like, oh, there's so much things. It's just, just all quite obvious. But then like, I read it again like a, sort of a few years ago and was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I've made all these mistakes. <laughs> and and it's sort of, as you get a bit older, you realize that actually like, you sort of mess up all these obvious things, and you actually really need to think much more deeply about them. And just sort of, yeah, made me realize this.
1: Well, thanks for reading it twice. One yeah. of the things that I think, if I'm going to pride myself in life as being a not-bad teacher, right, how do you identify somebody as a good teacher at the end of the day? I think it's they, they make you aware of what you already know. You get to a situation where you'll read a book or you'll listen to a conversation and say, well, I knew that. But well, now that I've reminded you of what you know, what are you going to do with it? Because yeah. sometimes, you're right. I mean, what have I said today that isn't anything other than common sense? So it's everything I've said to you, you knew already. And I'd like to think all the you who join in your podcast will have known already. All I'll ask you to do now then is having got to that point of reflection, what's your response going to be the fourth R?
0: Yeah, yeah, this is all about then going on to take action. And yeah, one thing I've been also thinking about is there's, have you heard of like the Jungian theory, I think it is, where he talks about like known knowns, known unknowns, then unknown unknowns. But they never talk about unknown knowns as in the thing that you kind of know inside you because you have all the information already there, but you just never really put the connections together.
1: Well, just talking about knowns and unknowns and things, one one of the things that, that I should, maybe I should have mentioned a little bit earlier is that as a coach, you should actually take a bit of time every now and again. You're working with a young person or somebody or somebody in business or, or in sport or whatever, you're, you're coaching them. You must never make the person you're coaching the victim of your limitations. And what I mean by that is you have to take time to know what you know. You've got to be able to know, if you like, accept what you don't know, and you've got to be able to know somebody who does and bring them into the party. And so in life, it, I think it's, I just I said to my two daughters as they were growing up, I said, um, it's not a sign of ignorance to ask a question. It's actually a sign of intelligence. It's not an acknowledgement of failure uh, to ask for help. If you're working with somebody else and you you don't know the answers, why on earth are you trying to persuade yourself that you can muddle along and help the person you're supposed to be coaching? You can't do that. You've got to be willing to ask for help. I think sometimes uh, there's a a mentality that thinks that if I'm asking for help, I'm admitting that I'm failing, that I'm not good enough. But we can't know everything. (laughs) How can we possibly know everything? I think... One of the things that maybe we often talk about the importance of courage in life, maybe one aspect of being courageous is being willing to be vulnerable and show sure we're vulnerable and to stand up and admit when things are not, not working and when we do um, have, have a weakness that we need to correct. It would be a very shallow people who would look at you and despise you for that. If we have right relationships as we go through life, then people will accept that and they will appreciate the fact that you are willing to step outside the, the, the relationship to find those people who can actually bring something positive to the endeavor in which you're engaged.
0: Yeah, that makes lots of sense. I would um, sort of flip that as well as there's the theory that there is no stupid questions. And That's so as the teacher, you should sort of be vulnerable of, okay, if they are asking questions, it's clearly because if you're not teaching them right and you should, Actually, be the one taking ownership of the problems going on and Mm -hmm. yeah, literally embody everything you just said again. So, really interesting. Thanks. One thing I haven't really heard you talk much about, but maybe I just haven't looked enough. But, um, what do you think about sort of the whole cheating? Because you talk about like winning and like developing this mindset, but then you can kind of want it too much to the point where you then feel like you might have to take drugs or do something wrong. So, what would you say, as in you must have seen a lot of people that turns out were cheating in hindsight, just because if you were around for so long doing things, even whether you coach someone or not, what do you think happened to make people then go and cheat? Well, actually, it's a character flaw.
1: I think in, if you start off with a simple relationship, coach-athlete, and then you can expand that as an athlete within a team or a coach within a team or in a society so on or in a business, you start off with, you've got to be pretty clear what your common goal is, what's our purpose here, your vision, where we, where we want to get to. But by the same token, you've got to agree a common code of practice or, or set of values as to how we are going to work together to achieve what we must achieve. You know what the rules are, and you know there's a consequence for breaking them. So, And for most people, I'd like to think, uh, there's almost an inbuilt honesty to begin with in life. So, for example, when you were playing football in a schoolyard, did you have a referee? No. Why? Because you all knew the rules and it was your responsibility to live within them. One of the problems, I know it's a bit silly, one of the big problems in competitive sport is a, is having a referee or an umpire. Why? Because you abrogate your responsibility for keeping to the rules so that the, the referee or the umpire. It's what his decision or her decision is. And that shouldn't be what it is. It should be your will to live within the values and rules that are there. Anybody who wants to violate that, it's a character flaw. It might be done out of frustration. It might be done out of all, all sorts of other things. But if you come back to my business about emotional control and making sure that we ignore the distractions, then the chances of you taking yourself to that level whether you think it's um, okay to break the rules is that's, you're stepping across a big line. And there's not an excuse for it. It's, um, it's your character. There's a, the, maybe we've all got a dark side. And, you know, it's, got, it's interesting that a lot, long time ago um, there was a young man that um, violated the rules um, and he was going to go to prison. And I remember I met with him the night before he went to prison because I was with a crowd and we were all gonna take him out for his last good meal before he went to prison. And he said, you know, Frank, I stepped across the line when I did this. It was to take drugs. actually. I stepped along the line when I did this. And I said, no, that's not when you stepped across the line, son. You stepped across the line when you thought that was an option. Mm. It's inside you. you. You don't, for goodness sake, think that the act is the problem is the decision and the choice that's a problem. And that's, we've got to be, we help ourselves in that, of course, by agreeing a set of values. We will play to the rules. We will play to the game. We'll play for each other. We will be honest. We will have integrity, all these bits and pieces that you can weave into the wording of your values. But you've got to stick within these. I mean, I'm not saying that I've never broken rules in life. I think we've all done it at some point. Uh, I've got a few penalty points and my driving license for that, but the fact is, is that really a true reflection of who you are? You take the support of the rules, and the, because that's what they're there for—they support good behaviour. Uh, take your the values that we're going to have in the team, and live within these. And then, um, if there's the occasional glitch, there's going to be the occasional glitch. But let's make sure, for the most part, we stay within. Them.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, what do you think about? as a human, you know, you're, you talk about like, you know, we're all sort of innately quite fair when we're first born and like, you know, you're literally just this sort of experiencing entity and you kind of, you just learn from what you experience. And so at some point they learn to kind of consider that there's a choice that they can do this and it is an option. Like how do you think it kind of got into their head that they could do it when like other people, it just never happens.
1: Right. There are some things in life you can be taught. There are other things you can only learn. The things you can be taught are the tools of the trade, the stuff that a lecture can produce, a book can produce, and so on. That's the, These are the things that you can be taught, but the things you can learn, you only learn through life experience or experience in your particular arena of life, and the trouble with that, uh, with experience, as Vernon Law said, is that experience is the cruelest of all teachers because she gives you the test first and the lesson second. and The bit is you've got to be willing to expose yourself to the test. But equally, we've got to have access to someone after the event who can help make sure that we've learned the lessons that we should learn from that experience. And for the most part, if we can stand back from it, if you like, the science of coaching in life is what you can be taught. The art of coaching is what you learn through experience. And the critical, central part of that, not only for the coach, but for the person who's being coached, is that the the learning by experience is about making right choices or right decisions. Some of that will be evidence-based because this is what the analysis and the statistics say. Other stuff will be judgment-based because you know that's the right thing as opposed to doing things right by the rules. It's the right thing to do. And I think this, this is, what I'm trying to say is that maybe as good educators or as good teachers, coaches, mentors, or whatever, maybe the, the, the trick is to provide the experiences, allow the learning to happen, that allow you to, to that put you into situations you've not been in before, and to make choices. What you mustn't do is jump across the fence and make the choice for the person. You've got to let them go through the experience because once it's over and they come out, then you can start honestly looking at the reflection side and what could have been done better, what could have been done differently. And also, one of the things I think you learn through that process is you might go into the the process thinking at the back of your mind a question. What's the solution? What's the answer? But you come out of it with a different question in your mind. Just how many answers are there? Just how many solutions are there? And if we get into that, your whole notion of growth mindset begins to take off.
0: Cool, that's really fascinating. So one thing I do like to talk about on the podcast is sort of the future of someone's field. So what do you think is gonna change in the way that people coach or what's going on in athletics and stuff in like the next five, 10 years? Is of gonna be a fundamental shift towards where things are going?
1: Well, I think one, the there must be a load of answers to that question, but one of the things that I suppose concerns me is that if we're, technology is fantastic now, isn't it? I mean, we can have a, have a drone up in the sky and we can get cameras at 360 degrees. We can analyze. We've got software that gets data analysis, so on. We've got all of these things going on for us. We can go online and... and listen to lectures on coaching but the point is we must not allow ourselves as coaches to have technology make the decisions for us technology is there to inform your decision making it's not to make the decision for you also with the world of technology if we're not careful we can begin to forget that coaching is actually about two Areas. One is the technical area, the techniques, the technology, and the bits and pieces. But the other one is the people area. And if you're not good in your people skills, I don't care how much technical or technology knowledge you have, it's not going to work because you are coaching people. You're not coaching pieces of machinery. You're not coaching people who have got no brain and so on. You're coaching people to use their intelligence, their emotions. Their physicality to move forward and for, for them to take ownership of that. That's what the whole process is. And if you're not careful, if you're drawn, sucked into the whole idea of the technical is the only thing we have to work on and technology will be the solution for us, uh, you'll make a, a huge mistake. Why? Because the people you're coaching will not be able to make decisions for themselves. Maybe that's the true focus of, of our work as coaches. Is to help people to make right choices, whether it's in the arena, or whether it's in life. And I'm not sure if by suddenly getting drawn, sucked into the world of technology and technical aspects, I'm not
0: sure if that's going to to make that outcome happen. Yeah, that's really interesting because there's an interesting story about I think traders. It is a study where they gave them like the five most important data points they needed to make decisions. And they all did like okay. And they said, like, okay, yeah, I think I did okay. And their predictions were about right. And then they gave them like 30 data points instead. And they all thought they'd done a lot better uh, because they had like more data, but they actually did worse. But they also thought that like they were much more confident about their decisions because they had more data and they felt like they had this knowledge when actually it wasn't helping them at all. It was sort of like clouding their mind. But I hadn't really thought about it in terms of everything else. But yeah, it's really pretty. Well,
1: Malcolm Gladwell's
0: book, Blink, and uh, Mm. and Gigarant his
1: book, um, Gut Feelings. I think um, they're, they're definitely worth a read. The Gut Feelings one is a little bit more um, cerebral than, than Gladwell's, but and it's definitely worth a read. What was the name of the author of the Gut Feeling one? Gert Gigerenzer, Max Planck Institute, Berlin, I think, yeah. um, behavioral studies kind of guy. He's, mm-hmm. uh, he's very good, and, and it's about trusting your judgment, if you like. I think that comes back to my point about experience, You've not learned to make judgment calls in the moment unless you're put into situations where you're obliged to do so. But as I come, come, and I'm repeating myself, but I don't want to go back to the time. You have to be able to have access to a mentor or a coach after the event to talk you through what you learned from it and what we can do differently or better next time. Around.
0: Cool. Interesting. So obviously you've had a very long career in coaching. You must have had a lot of people that you're coaching who then decided to leave sport and go into other things. Have you Mm. helped them, like coach them through the transition into becoming a business person or other things in their life?
1: Well, that's really a good question because I won't get personal with the character's concern, but I think there were two or three people who were at the very top end of the world and they were coming towards the end of their career and I learned very quickly not to get into the conversation with them. You could hint at every now and again to, to see what the response would be. But the response in almost every case was the same thing. I could see in their eyes, looking back at me, this is you're having this conversation because you don't believe in me anymore. And you've got to be careful at that point. Because the odd thing about a lot of the people that I've worked with is they don't believe in Anna I don't think they're ever going to get old. There's never going to be a day when they're going to have to do something else. Some of them had already began to look at their commercial professional career after sport uh, before they left the sport. Others have just made a decision not to go down that road, n- not to think about it. And when they come out, they've actually not had very much ambition to do much, much else, which
0: is disappointing. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I haven't really thought about the fact that when you start thinking about the next plans, you're sort of perhaps giving up on your current ones and stuff, which is obviously not what you want at all as a coach. But yeah, you do kind of need to look ahead.
1: Right, Sam. You'd like to think that somebody would grab that and think, yes, I've got an even bigger mountain to climb in front of me and yeah. help me and I'm going to move on to great things. And there's not a lot of sport, top sports people. Obviously, there are a few, but there are mm. a few, but not a lot of top sports people have, have then gone on to make hugely successful worlds for themselves in the world of business or elsewhere?
0: Yeah, it's strange. Because you think you know, they have the winning mentality and the ability to like, adapt to change and stuff, and that business would kind of lend themselves to it. But maybe they like <laughs> running around and just trading all day or something and <laughs> constantly at a desk. Who knows? I uh, haven't spoken to many of them, but hopefully they will in the future. On that note, actually, do you have any? people that you think would be really interesting for the podcast that are really good at speaking?
1: Oh, you've got, I mean,
0: there's a lot of very good rugby coaches out there at the
1: moment um, to say. In fact, there are quite a few coaches worldwide. I don't know if you can pick up any of the, statu- any of the guys in the States. I would think that Tracy Nell will be a very interesting person to get a hold of uh, on, the, on the side. Um, there are ladies like Teresa Griffiths, who's um, the commanding officer at um, it was Headley coach, is now it's now they call it Stanford, Stanford Hall. Uh, Rachel Yankee, very good, the good girl who she was the captain of England football, most most capped girl. Cool. And a lot, a lot of the coaches in football, uh, Gareth Southgate is very good. Uh, The I think uh, it would be very useful to get a hold of someone like Gregor Townsend Eddie Jones um, Warren uh, or Joe we've we've actually been pretty blessed on these islands in in the game of rugby the quality really high quality of coaches
0: yeah nice Uh, then so some more final questions what's the biggest risk you have taken
1: I don't know I think I've spent most of my life um, being quite happy to take on a challenge and and almost refusing to think it's a risk. Yeah. Uh, because I think it sounds silly that the moment I think you begin to think, well, this is a risk, uh, you, you're almost on the edge of trying to talk yourself out of it. But the point's made, even if I don't call it a risk, stepping to the edge is the only way you can get into position when you understand fear. And fear, of course, as you can remember from your school days, Will trigger off one of three responses. You'll either freeze, or you'll flee, or you'll fight. It's one of these three. Um, if you choose to fight, then you'll learn what courage is. Uh, courage isn't the absence of fear, courage is using fear to your advantage. And once you've done that, then you complete the cycle. You go back to the notion of risk again, and it turns itself around. But I say, I, I just like the idea of, I'll, I'll see something that I see I think is a challenge and I really want to happen Um, and I'll know that there'll be before I ever go into it that there'll be a lot of people trying to stop me doing it in fact one of the most fantastic motivators to me is if somebody says you can't do it that's a wonderful motivator to me I think every time somebody said that to me I thought right
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely, almost to the point of like it being a weakness because of like something I wasn't intending to do. Someone will say I can't do it, and then I have to go and do mm. it, even though it's not on my plan. It's like a oh, nightmare. <laughs> but yeah, otherwise it's really good.
1: And I've also got my wife, uh, Linda, rebukes me for this very regularly. Is that I find before I've completed one challenge or one project, I've always started another one or two, mm. and. It's you might rightly call them risks because the things that are, on the face of it, are going to challenge me to a point where it almost looks like it can't be done. But I like that.
0: Yes, yeah, it's, it's learning to find a good balance on that because I always I have the same problem of taking on too many things at once. Because if I kind of always sort of push myself to the boundary of what you're capable of, which is great, but then you kind of take on too much and then you sort of fail at too many things. And it's learning to work out what's the optimum sort of level for performance to. The most you can, kind of thing.
1: It's kind of the, the plate spinning kind of concept. Yeah. Is you want to keep on trying in the new thing to spin the plate on, but don't take your eye off the fact that there are other things to be completed, and always complete them. I mean, that's that. Don't ever leave. I mean, it's huge, infuriating thing to me uh, to see that things are not finished and not half done. I mean, almost to the point of, uh, you know, when you when you go to bed at night. Again, my wife and I always check the kitchen to make sure that all the, the plates and things are away, and we're, everything's perfect for the start of the next morning. Cool.
0: Um, what would you say is the book you've given to like literally every single athlete you've worked with? You've always been like, "This is the best book. You have to read this if there is one."
1: Well, if it, an athlete or somebody starting out, there were two books that were really important to me. I, I would yes, I would say, "Life Changes." One is a book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. The second one is uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel by Richard Bach. Very simple. One's a poem, the first one, and it's a beautiful set of questions about different aspects of life. And they're, they're worth a read, and you will learn a lot from them. Jonathan Livingston Seagull is a, a silly story, I suppose, about a seagull that decides to do things that other seagulls don't do. Um, he likes to fly at night, for example. And, uh, does all sorts of things. And he's rebuked by the, the other seagulls and so on. But he will persist. And he gets through the other, achieves great things. These are the two, I think, that make a huge difference for people launching themselves in careers and so on. I, I think, anyway, it certainly I made a big difference for me. Mean,
0: Cool. Yeah, I really like um, a good sort of children's story, but it's that that has really deep parables for like the rest of life. If you ever read like The Little Prince or something and you're like, wow, <laughs> totally applies. And most
1: recently, the book that I would recommend to everybody is The Courage to be Disliked. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the author, it's a Japanese, but it's a, like a Socratic dialogue as it goes through. So it's an, an easy read because of that, because it's question and answer. Uh, cool. And you can pick it down all the time. But, again, I promise you,
0: if you read that, it'll change how you approach life. Nice. Thanks so much. And what is the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? Marry me, I suppose. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Cause a lot of problems then?
1: (laughs) No, I I think, um, I mean, if if you don't have somebody in your corner who really believes in you um, and who gives you the support you need, then you'll be kind of a lonely and struggling person, I think. You need somebody in your corner, and to get a life partner is pretty
0: important. Okay, (laughs) that needs to get higher up my list then, apparently. (laughs) Crikey. Okay, so are there any questions that I haven't asked that you think I really should have asked?
1: Well, I don't know. I can't remember the whole scope of things, but you've gone through quite a few. I think, although I thought we'd actually done one of these things before, and clearly hadn't. Once you've gone through it yourself, you may have other questions, and I'm quite happy to do another one of these for for you again in the future. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Have you got any questions for me? No, just make sure that, um, I I hope everybody understands the the kind of message we're talking about here. There's, it's all about, my whole life has been about helping other people to fulfill their dreams. Uh, Mm. Sometimes to help take a nightmare and turn it into a dream which is one of the reasons why I admire so much the work at uh, Stanford Hall and Hedley Cork where young men and women have gone out for us, in our name, to fight the wrong people in life and have come home without limbs. And their life has been shattered and they're into a nightmare. And the coaches who work with them at Stanford Hall, they're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people from the medical through to the physiotherapy, through to the psychological. And they help people to create dreams out of nightmares. And to me, that's just another area of coaching. And I hope that those people who are listening who've got a passion for coaching, I hope there's something in this that will help them. And if not, please get in touch at some point.
0: Sure. Okay, so how would someone get in touch with you just?
1: Well, if it goes through the office is probably the best idea. Mm. and i'll give you the office email is office at fwd.uk.com all right yeah perfect thanks so much indeed for the privilege of giving a chat to your people and best wishes to all of them and
0: yeah let's keep in touch sure thanks so much for your time (laughs) wow so that was the end of the interview with frank and so many incredible insights there. Um if you liked him, then I can really recommend his book where he dives into many, many great things to just think about. And provide provides so much food for thought. Um, I did try to ask him things that were different to his book so that we had lots of great new content in the podcast. But there's plenty more in store if you grab one of his books. And um, yeah, trying to summarize the top tips from the podcast. Uh, <laughs> the whole podcast was just pure old tips um i kind of feel like if you just added a few examples to each one then you'd probably end up with a a really good book anyway um but to choose three of the tips kind of at random because they all were indistinguishably amazing and good um yeah the first one what i take home is that change happens so you should you should prepare for change and just expect it if you only plan a schedule of your day assuming that everything in it will go perfectly to plan and you don't have any capacity for something to go wrong or something to take longer and it'll just leave you feeling like a failure and getting annoyed at people and yourself. So if you expect there to be problems and instead think of yourself as a problem-solving machine, you can have a more positive attitude when things do go wrong and just start dealing with it rather than getting emotional or stressed. And that's just a, a really, really good life tip. And so leading on from this, Uh, is Frank's attitude to failure. You should expect to have things go wrong and, in quotes, fail. But that should only be considered an actual failure if you don't get back up and on your bike again, as he says. So we should always be making mistakes in everything or we aren't trying hard enough. And, yeah, this really relates to something I actually used to do when I was younger learning to ski. And, like, my friends would often say that they'd had a good day if they hadn't fallen over or something, and I would be like, completely the opposite of that philosophy and i used to count how many times i fell over and if i hadn't fallen over in like a morning of skiing like that was a failure for me like i had to try harder to the point where i'd fall over and it meant that i was actually pushing myself and i ended up getting really good really fast because of like i like to ski quite late and all my friends were better than me but after like a few weeks i was already like one of the best and yeah um just pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to the point where you are like making mistakes is just a huge way to actually force yourself to hit your limits and get to the point where you can do like really crazy, awesome stuff. And related to this is the fact that you do always have second chances. So like many things in life kind of seem to stress us out. And it's like the most important thing that we have to do right now. And it's like our only opportunity. But realistically, if you fail in a competition or in a business or even a relationship, like it's not the end of everything in life and you can pick yourself up you can try again and you can just take your learnings with you and and come back and maybe succeed the next time so yeah now onto the final point i would like to pick up on something about frank um that we didn't necessarily explain in the interview he didn't say it directly but in general frank just came across as really super passionate about what he was doing and he just seems to love coaching and helping people to do their best and you could just tell like there was a fire in him from just his first coaching experiences and that that fire is still there today. And he just clearly enjoyed explaining all the concepts and was just concerned that all of you listeners would be learning from them and me. And he's just, he's offering to do more interviews because he just loves coaching so much. And that's like a mark of success when you find something um, that you just really like doing and you become really super good at it, like Frank has done. So whether it's coaching, sports, cooking, writing, whatever. Just try and optimize to do things that you're passionate about and you can fight to make those things happen. So yeah, nice one Frank. They don't give OBEs out for nothing and he clearly deserved it. So now on to books. We spoke about a lot of books and I can't really give a summary of all of them right now because it'll take too long but I'll read out the titles again just to remind you and you can write them down if you want them and they'll be in the show notes. So. Uh, first one was William McRaven, Make Your Bed Every Morning. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell Blink, uh, another book, Gerd Gigerenza, a book called Gut Feelings. Um, Chris Hadfield, the astronaut who wrote An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. What's going, no, what going to space taught me about ingenuity, determination, and being prepared for anything. And then, uh, another book khalil gibran the prophet and then the final one richard bark who wrote jonathan livingston siegel and yet yeah, so yeah a lot of books and um as i've already mentioned frank has some good books as well uh called winning and um another one related to that title um you'll, you'll it'll be pretty obvious i'm sure if you search frank dick and you'll find some books by him and they're all really good um Cool. And now on to what's coming up next week. We have another coach. This is going to be Ryan Gottfordson, who is a PhD, and he's done his research on leadership. And he's identified four key mindsets that are required for a successful leader. And like. It's a really, really good episode. He's a really funny, interesting guy, and psychologist. And um, yeah, he also identified, like, he made a test for it and he failed all of his tests and concluded that he was not a great leader, but he has been working on his mindsets and coached himself to do much better at these things. And he gets a lot of results in the people he does coach. And um, yeah, he made a lot of sense. And I really, really appreciated my conversation with him. He was a fun guy. And I think you will learn a lot from him if you do want to be a leader or you're interested in analyzing your leader that you uh, know and helping them, I, I think this would be a good podcast to listen to. And yeah, on that, I guess that's the end of the episode. I do have a Patreon, by the way. Um, I fail to mention it quite often because, um, I don't know, I get annoyed by people that talk about their Patreons a lot, especially the people that like talk about how much non-advertising they have and then they spend 10 minutes talking about their Patreon and you're like, oh my God, shut up. I I'd prefer to have, like, six minutes of adverts than you just talking about being supported in different ways. But, yeah, if you want to support me, you want me to, like, spend more time doing this, then maybe sending me some money would be nice. Um But you don't have to, you know, everyone's got a life and shit to do. Um So, yeah, on that very unsalesy message about, like, supporting me on Patreon or doing something else more useful with your money, Um yes, this is the end of the show, and hopefully I'll see you next week. And... Say hi to Frank if you get a chance, cause he's awesome. You've just listened to an episode of the growth mindset podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at sam harris tweets or instagram at sam jam snaps show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growth thanks so much for listening give yourself a big hug from me if you're with a friend give them a hug as well and i hope you enjoy your next podcast